Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Northlands. Uh, I'm Scott Ritzheimer. My wife, Hilda Maria, and I have our elders here at Northlands. We've been members of Northlands for over 10 years now. This is our home here in Georgia. And many of you uh, have, have walked with us through some, some great times, some difficult times. There's been big challenges, uh, like trying to refine our faith and identity in the wake of losing our daughter. There have been kind of middle-of-the-road challenges of building a business, starting from nothing. And then there have been kind of those everyday challenges of life and, and health and everything in between. And it's such an honor to get to come and share with you guys here. But when you have that much time in life, and, and this is the first time I've been on the stage here at Sunday morning, it creates a bit of a challenge. I've got about 30-some-odd years to share with you guys in about 30-some-odd minutes. So this might be the longest message you hear all year. I'm not sure. But, but before we get there, I want to play a game. Everyone, anyone up for a game? Okay. Have you guys heard of the game Two Truths and a Lie? You guys, you know it? My kids love it. Uh, we like to play it around the dinner, time, uh, dinner table. And unfortunately, what that means is as my first act of leading you guys here on the stage, we're going to lie to you. So I didn't run this by Greg. This might be the shortest message of the year, uh, but <laughs> let's, let's just see if we can get away with it. So, all right, let's play the game. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to share with you guys a, a, a cunning lie. I'm gonna share with you a stunning truth, and then we're gonna change the game a little bit, and I'm gonna share with you a story about an Australian. Now, I'm gonna put all three up here, and I wanna see if you guys can guess which one is which. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. So the very first one is Frank Jenner. Frank Jenner. All right, so let's see. It might get, it's gonna get a little harder, don't worry. The second one here is that God wants, to do, God wants you to use your strength to expand his kingdom for him. Two truths and a lie. The last one here is God wants you to do with him what you cannot possibly do for him. Now, let's start with the Australian. I think that's probably the easiest one. Which one do you guys think is the Australian? Someone shout it out. Frank Jenner. Frank Jenner, is it? Yes, we got it. All right, we are on a roll. Now, the good news is that means we went from a one in three odds to one in two odds. So you guys got a much better chance at getting this next one right. Uh, what I want to do here, I want to split between these two. God wants you to use your strength to expand his kingdom for him, or God wants you to do with him what you cannot possibly do for him. Which do you think is the truth? With him. God wants you to do with him what you cannot possibly do for him. And this is a big deal because we're taught from the early, I remember Sunday school lessons, right? And you get the rules and the regulations, you get that you do this and you do that. And, and we, we learn all these things about how to live our lives for God, right? We, we, we go to school and people are like, what are you going to do with your life? And you're like, I have no idea what I'm going to do with tonight. And, and, and so we, we kind of go through this and it's like, what, 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 what? And, and the reality of it is all those rules and regulations, while they have their place, and I'm not necessarily against them, although I kind of am, uh, they miss the point. The thing that we should be training our kids, the thing that we need to pursue ourselves is a relationship. And I love what JD preached a couple weeks ago. It's a great, great setup for what I have to share today because it's critical to this idea of doing with God what you could not possibly do for him. Now, to explain this point, we're going to go through a couple of stories. We're going to first look at the story of Moses. Everyone know who Moses is? Yeah, good, okay. So uh, there's, a, there's actually a few different versions of Moses. And so starting in Exodus 2, we see Moses version 1. So 
Uh, let's go ahead and read it. Verse 11, it says, now it came time to pass in those days when Moses was grown. This is the first story we hear about Moses as an adult. That he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way, he looked that way, he kind of flexed his muscles, I got this guy, you know. And what's he do? He kills the Egyptian, and then he buries him in the sand. And, and he probably thinks, job done, you know, like, this is the son of Pharaoh, he's got the power, he's, you know, he's, he's grown up, and, and he's, he's saved his, Egypt, his Israelite brother. And, you know, what happens is, if we unpack this, this is a terrible thing to do, by the way, but what, what happens is Moses is responding to the, go, the call of God on his life. This is not open rebellion from Moses, Right? Do you see that? He, he, he feels what his brothers feel. Moses is a deliverer. Uh, and we know that from the very beginning. But what happens is he takes matters into his own hands. And what's the result? He's a murderer, an outlaw, and a wanderer in the desert. And, and this brings us to what is, I think, one of the biggest challenges that we have in, in this kind of pool toward doing things for God why we take matters into our own hands is arrogance. And in this context, I define arrogance as the belief that you can fulfill the call of God on your life. Yeah, arrogance is the belief that you can fulfill the call of God on your life. Now, this happened to Satan. It happened to Adam and Eve. It happened to <laughs> Moses. And the reason it's such a cunning lie is because this isn't, again, this isn't open rebellion in, in Moses' case. This is him feeling the call of God on his life and taking it into his own hands. And, and I want to pause here for a second and just like, have you done this? I know I have right? I know there's time after time after time when, you know, maybe the Lord hasn't moved when I thought he was going to move or, or I just, oh, this is the way I want to go, right? We, we recognize the call of God on our life long before we have the capability of walking it out. And so Moses does this, and our Moses version one, right? He wants to deliver his people. He takes matters into his own hands, and it doesn't work. And so we kind of know what happens. 40 years go by, right? Like Moses is probably 20-something whenever the story starts. 40 years go by, two-thirds of his life, he spends wandering in the desert. And the, we know the story, the burning bush happens, and, uh, and, and God calls out to Moses, and, and he calls him. And, and again, this is, this is a very different Moses right now, which we're gonna get to in a second, but I want you to hear how the Lord calls Moses. So we're picking up the story in, uh, in verse 11. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, seven. So the Lord says, I have surely seen. Notice the pronoun usage here. I have surely seen the, op the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. The Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years. Moses has been in the desert for 40 years, and God saw every single moment. You know, I don't know about you, but there have been times when I waited four days, and I was like, where are you? <laughs> yeah, or like, it's four, this isn't four days, this isn't four months, this is 40 years. And, and it brings us to a really interesting point, and this is one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn in my life, is that sometimes God delays to give us strength. 
Sometimes God delays to tear down our strength to the point that we realize we can't do what he's called us to do without him. And so it works. <laughs> 40 years was long enough for Moses. Now, I'm not recommending this as a strategy. I don't think we want to all go spend 40 years. But let's look at what happens. This is what I call Moses V2. And this is Moses' response. And he says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children out of, of Israel out of Egypt? <clears throat> this is not the Moses who left Egypt, right? This is, and, and again, I want to kind of pause here for a second. Translate this to your own life. Moses was, was the son of Pharaoh. He was part of the richest, most powerful family, arguably in the world, when he left Egypt. He left Egypt as an outlaw. Right? He, had, he probably had a very nice bank account uh, back in Egypt. He, he had great strategic relationships. He had the perfect position in Israel to do something about the plight of his brothers. And God strips every last piece of it away. Have you been there? Are you there? Right? Are you in one of those times where it's like, I used to see how this could happen. God, I used to see how we could get to the call on my life, but I, I, I don't even think it's possible anymore. And in that moment, what we feel, we feel one thing, and it's we feel disqualified, right? We feel like I, I, I've screwed up. I, I tried to do what he called me to do. I can't do it. And, and in that very moment, a beautiful thing happens, and that is when we become qualified in the eyes of the Lord. And so what does God say? He says, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The sign that God has called him and that God is with him is that God is with him. Do you see that? And so we've got our Moses version two. Now, uh, we all know the story. You know, we've seen the Disney, the Disney movie, right? There's the plagues and you know, pestilence and famine and all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, there's frogs in there somewhere. I don't know what frogs are for, but there's frogs in there. And, and we get to this point, Israel's at the Red Sea and what happens? Moses raises the staff, parts the Red Sea. It had to be stunning, had to be stunning. Israel walks across on dry ground. And I wanna pick up the story here. Israel's made it across and who is hot on their heels but the entire Egyptian army. Again, most powerful army in the world. And this is what happens. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Moses V1 tried to take on one Egyptian to save one Israelite. Moses V3 takes out an entire army by waving a stick in the air, right? Because God is with him. Do you see that? God has a call on your life, and it's so much bigger than what you could ever hope to accomplish. And it's so much easier to accomplish when you do it with him. And, and this is like, this is the Hollywood ending of Hollywood endings, right? Like, this is awesome. Like, it's like heroic. There's like songs. And I think they're like dancing. And, and Hollywood stops the movie here because Hollywood thinks that the end result is the freedom of the Israelites. But there's more to this story than that. So if we fast forward again, another uh, few years, a couple of wrong turns, Moses is out in the desert and he's talking to the Lord and the Lord has had it 
with the Israelites. I mean, he is over it. And he basically says, hey, go. Like, you got the promised land. I promised it to you. You can have it, but I'm out. The Lord says, go on without me. And again, our, our Hollywood narrative is this is everything that Moses V1 wanted. He wanted the freedom of the Israelites. He wanted to see them step into the promised land. But that's not what Moses version four does. Let's see what he says when, when the Lord tells him to go without him. So Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will, do, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. The greatest fight we fight here on earth is to know God and be known by him. There is no other victory that matters other than to know God and be known by him. And what sets us apart as Christians, what marks our life is the presence of the Lord. And so what does Moses say? He says, show me your glory. And, and the Lord does. And, and Moses sees God's glory in a way that no other guy did or girl did on this side of eternity because he finally understood the one thing that really mattered, and that's to know God and be known by him. He finally understood that he could do far more with God than he could ever do for him. And so Moses is a great picture of this, but he's not the only one. There's other stories here. And so I want to tell a story about someone else who, who didn't quite do it as well. And it, it introduces to us another one of the challenges that can lead us away from working with God and, and instead working for him. And, and this, the, the person in our story here is Saul. And to kind of lay some context, catch you guys up, Israel's in the promised land, and they, they look around and they're like, hey, everyone else has a king. We need a king. And God says, well, I'm your king. Let me be your king. And they're like, mm, pass. And, and God's like, he relents. And, uh, and so he says, okay, we'll get you a king. And, and so uh, the, they anoint uh, Saul as king. And God commands both Saul and the Israelites to follow him. It's the one commandment that we see around the coronation of Saul. And so we're going to pick up our troops. This is just two years into Saul's kingship. And he decides, I'm going to free the Israelites, similar to what Moses is doing. I'm going to free the Israelites from these, these you know, uncircumcised Philistines. And so he gathers 3,000 of his toughest, strongest troops. And he's like, we got this. You know, we're going we're gonna to save Israel for the Lord. And what do the Philistines do? They gather 30,000 chariots. They gather 6,000 horsemen, and then it says, and as many soldiers as the sands in the sea. I don't know about you, but the math doesn't work here, and the math doesn't work for Saul either. They're probably about 100 to 1. And to make matters worse, Samuel says, hey, I'm going to show up in about seven days, so wait for me. So Saul's waiting for Samuel, and as he does, his 3,000 dwindles down to 600. And that's where we're going to pick up our story. As for Saul, <clears throat> he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the sign set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So what does Saul do? Seems kind of innocuous. He says, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me, and he offered the burnt offering. You see, what happened was... 
Saul didn't, uh, Saul didn't burn the offering because it was what he was supposed to do. He did it because he was scared. And the second big challenge we have in working with God and not for him is anxiety. And in this context, I define anxiety as the belief that God can't do it on his own. Anxiety is the belief that God can't do it on his own, and we kind of have to help him out a little bit. You know, it's, we got you, God. We'll take care of it. And so, uh, so well, let's kind of pick up the story here. And, uh, and, and well, actually, before we get there, I want you to catch uh, the severity of the consequences. We're going to skip the verse here, but what happens is Saul does go on to win the victory. He actually goes on to defeat the Philistines 100 to 1, uh, and he does it because God causes all the Philistines to fight each other, and they just kind of go in and clean up the, the litter. But what, he ha- what happens is he, lo- he wins the victory, but he loses the war. Saul loses the kingdom forever because he didn't wait on the Lord. So this is what it says, verse 13, uh, Samuel shows up. He says, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now that your kingdom shall not continue, for the Lord has sought himself a man after God's own heart. And that man was David. And think about that as an introduction, right? Uh, someone didn't meet you before. God was like, hey, I want to introduce you to, to, to Jimmy here. Jimmy is a man after my heart. I mean, like, what would that do to you? And this is the way, and it's very interesting in the Bible, every time something's introduced, the very first time, we have the, the power of definition, right? It's very important. And, and when we, over the course of David's entire life, this one thing is the one thing that matters, and that David was a man after God's own heart. And so I wanted to share a story with you uh, about David because David actually finds himself in almost the exact same situation that Saul did in, uh, I believe, 2 Samuel 5. And so, you know, David rounds up his army, Philistines round up their army. There's a lot of Philistines. I don't know where they all came from, but there's a lot of Philistines in all these stories. So there's a lot more Philistines than there are. Uh, and, and so David inquires of the Lord. He waits on the Lord, he inquires of the Lord, and he says, shall I go up against the, I'm sorry, uh, yes, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? Look at the pronouns. Shall I go up against the Philistines and will you deliver them? And so the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, not I, but the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. And, and that's wonderful. And what a lot of us want to do, we kind of want to check the box. Like, oh, I've got this figured out now. We want to add like our breaking through the Philistines file. We want to file that away. Like, here's the strategy. And, you know, we kind of go on with life. And if we fast forward just a couple of verses, what happens is David finds himself in the exact same situation all over again. Have you ever been there in life? Like, I thought we... I thought we beat this one, right? Like, I thought I passed this level. It looks strangely familiar what's going on. And, and we find ourselves in the same position again. And what happens, you or I, maybe you don't do this, but I do, is I go and I, I look for like, you know, beating Philistines. No, it's not F, it's PH. Okay, got it. Like, I've got my Philistines file. And we, we try and run the same plays from the playbook of last time, but that's not what David does. Let's look at what David does instead. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, 
And he said, and this is what the Lord says to him, you shall go up and circle around behind them, come upon them from in front of the mulberry trees, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For the Lord your God will go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines as far as, uh, from Geba as far as Gezer. You see, David did a lot of things wrong in his life. You know, if you feel disqualified, David was a murderer, a fornicator, a liar. Like, he did a lot of things wrong, but he did one thing right. And that was, at, at, in victory or in defeat, he always pursued the Lord. He unlocked the secret to success, not just now in this life, but for eternity. And that is to, to, to have victory in things that matter beyond our lifetime. We have to work with a Lord who's, who exists beyond our lifetime as well. And so instead of giving in to anxiety or arrogance, relying on his own uh, strength or the tactics of the past, what does David do? He inquires of the Lord. And there's a lesson in this for us, and this is another one of those uh, tricky, tricky situations, but what we can see from this story, and, and a truth that I think will help a lot of you, and I know it's helped me, is that we cannot make a model out of a moment. We cannot make a model out of a moment, because what we do with models is we use them to, to exercise our own strength. We use them to not need the Lord anymore. And there's a group of people who were really, really good at this. They're very, very good at making models of moments, and they were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were exquisite and excruciating rule followers, right? Like they had the whole thing down, and they were obsessed with working for God. And so I want to show you how, just how costly this, this lie is if we're not careful. And, and I want to pick up in the story. You guys know the story of Lazarus? Yeah, yeah the story of Lazarus. And so Jesus, uh, you know, Lazarus is sick. Jesus waits. Lazarus dies, waits four days. Jesus comes, heals Lazarus. Amazing. You are like, that's awesome. I want you to see how the Philistines re respond because this is the result of living a life working for God. So it says in John, 14, or John 11, verse 45, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs, and if we leave him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And listen to this, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Romans will come and take both our place, that's arrogance, and our nation, that's anxiety. Why did the Pharisees follow the book of the law? Because they were trying to prepare the way for the second coming of the Lord, or for the coming of the Lord. They, they, wanted, they wanted God to free Israel. The, the chief concern, other than their own gain, which is another term for another time, was to save the nation of Israel. They wanted the victory here, and they sacrificed the victory for eternity. Uh, <clears throat> they were so focused on saving Israel, right, for God, that they completely missed him when he came. 
And so look at what they say here, because this is really helpful in understanding the difference between the victory that God had for, uh, for the, the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, and the victory that they were pursuing instead. And so one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, did this, now he, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not only for that nation, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they plotted to kill his life. You see, those who gave their entire lives to work for God crucified him when he came because they were concerned with saving one nation when what God had in his mind was a lot bigger. And so we get, we, we get this, like, okay, that's good. Um, brings a question, though. Uh, how do you do that? <laughs> it's like, okay, we've, we've seen a lot of ways of not doing this, but how do we actually go in and serve the Lord? And so I want to give you guys a few pointers here that have been helpful for me in my walk with the Lord, things that I think that he's shown us. And the first one here, and it is by far the most important, is to go after God's heart. Go after God's heart. It is fundamentally not about what. Our story is fundamentally about who. I can't give you tips and tricks and tactics on how to work with God. That misses the point completely, right? The point is to be with him. And so what's gonna happen, right? You're gonna mess this up from time to time. Uh, David messed this up a lot. We saw that. Moses messed this up a lot, and he saw that. And I'm not necessarily judge, you know, justifying bad behavior, but what brought those, those men through those times and out the other side, what brought them from disqualified to qualified was their relationship with the Lord, their pursuit of God's heart. Now, here's the hard part. You never get to graduate from step one. You never get to graduate from step one. You don't get to stop pursuing the Lord, right? David inquired. He told him how to do it. Then what happens? Something happens again. David inquired, and he showed him how to do it. That's the model. The model is ask the Lord. The model is to pursue Jesus every day of your life from this day forward. From this day on, you will never be less dependent on God. Sorry to break it to the ego inside of you, but from this day on, you will never be less dependent on God because the moment that he makes you a little stronger in him, guess what happens? Your 3,000 troops is met by 30,000 troops. The moment that you step into an upgrade in your knowledge and understanding of the Lord, he's gonna step you into a bigger arena and you're gonna need him even more. And so, you ha but we have to because the only way to achieve what God's called us to do is to do it with him. And so part one here is to go after God's heart. Now, when you do, uh, I've got some more bad news for you. You're gonna find you spend a lot of time waiting on the <laughs> Lord. And hopefully it's not 40 years, right? Uh, but we're gonna spend time waiting on the Lord. And that's number two. Now, one of the things about waiting is it is not apathetic or lazy or slothful. Waiting has nothing to do with not doing anything. Waiting has to do with where our focus goes. It's like a, a server at a restaurant. They wait on you. Waiting is active. And so when we're waiting on the Lord, uh, 
what we have to recognize first is that he lives outside of time. He's not bothered by 40 or 400 or 4,000 years. And the, the part we're going to come to here in a moment as well is he doesn't need to accomplish it in your lifetime. Many of the fruits we see will not come within our lifetime. And there is not one thing you can lose in this life that he cannot return a hundredfold in the next. And so we see Jesus, the genius of Jesus was his ability to wait. And we see it again and again. Everything that Jesus did, he said, I only do what I see my father doing. The genius of Jesus was his ability to wait. He waited 20 some odd years to to start his ministry, right? Right? And uh, I was thinking about this this morning. This is a total, this one's free. Um, is, so Jesus, what's his first miracle? He turns water into wine, right? Uh, it's pretty mischievous. I love it. Uh, but but who, who calls him out on it? His mother. And so how did she know that he could do that? What were they doing like at dinner the, the night before? It's kind of like, you know, steak uh, or, you know, and so, I don't know what it was, but she knew that he could do it. But the, the, the genius of Jesus was his ability to wait. The genius of Jesus was to know that it is not my will, but yours, Lord, and to know what that will was and to know the ways of his Father. He did it by praying. He did it by waiting. And again, waiting is not about inaction. It's about proper action. It's not about what. It's about who. And so when we wait on the Lord, one of the things that's going to happen, and where you see most of our friends in the stories earlier being pushed to arrogance or anxiety was when they focused on the wrong victory. The third thing we need to do is change the win. The win is not your bank account balance going up. The win is not even a relationship being restored. The win is not about finally having enough money raised to go to the mission field. Right? Those things can all happen, but when we, we pursue those at the expense of the call of God on our lives, that's when we sell ourselves short and begin working for him instead of with him. There's a story I want to tell you, uh, uh, and I told you about this earlier. There's a, a man named Frank Jenner, uh, and this story really changed my life. Frank Jenner was uh, just a guy. There's not really anything special about him, but he did something really unique, and that was for decades He felt like the Lord had called him to go out onto the corner of George Street in Sydney, Australia, and tell 10 people about the Lord. And he'd ask them, if you died tonight, where would you go, heaven or hell? And he did this 10 a day, day after day, day after day, day after day. And over decades of doing this, he did not see a single person commit their life to the Lord. I would have given up. (laughs) I was like, this isn't working. We need a new strategy here. But he, he knew that that was the call of God on his life. And so near the end of his life, uh, after he was no longer physically able to keep uh, going out onto the corner of George Street, a man, a reverend actually 10,000 miles away in England, overhears two sailors talking about a man who confronted them in Sydney, Australia. They ultimately ended up going on to give their life to the Lord. And again, at a conference in India uh, with a group of missionaries, the same story. And he gets interesting. He's like, I keep hearing about this guy on George Street. And no one knew his name, but he, he went around and uh, eventually found him, got to Sydney, Australia, and was able to share with him. Over the course of his research and traveling to five continents, he found uh, missionaries in India. He found missionaries in the Caribbean. He found pastors 
who had, been, who had uh, given their life because of this man's testimony uh, in the UK, in Europe, and in the US. And when they looked at the impact that, that uh, his life had had, there were over 150,000 people who gave their lives to the Lord. 150,000 people who gave their lives to the Lord, and he didn't see one of them. And so this reverend, his name was uh, Francis Dixon, uh, finds his way, he makes it to Sydney, gets to, and he tracks Frank down. Uh, Frank's not, you know, he's, he's not doing well. Um, and uh, they sit down in his living room and he starts telling him these stories. And Frank begins to weep and weep and weep because he'd not seen a single salvation in his time. But all of these people, all 150,000 of them, had their lives changed forever by his faithfulness. You see, the win for Frank Jenner was not that people would give their life to the Lord. It was that he'd be faithful to the call and do his life with God. And again, many of the fruits that'll come as a result of your faithfulness and walking with him will not be seen on this side of eternity. And when we, we change the win to walking with him and not working for him, when we change the victory to the eternal victory, and not the one in, immediately in front of us, that's when we start to see God taking his part on behalf of our call in our lives. And so there's a few things just as we wrap up here that I wanna uh, give you guys a couple of questions that you can ask of the Lord. <clears throat> and I would, I would encourage you, I did this every day for 40 days uh, and it, it completely changed my life and I encourage you to do things. So we'll put up the three questions and I just wanna go through them real quick. So first one is, Father, who am I in you? If you don't know who you are in him, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Stop there and ask him. And he'll tell you. He may not tell you the first day, he may not tell you the 50th day, but he will tell you. And he'll tell you, and he'll tell you, and he'll tell you. And every moment it gets hard, every time you find yourself in the dark, wondering if you've lost your way, ask him, Father, who am I in you? Because that's the thing that matters. And from there, Father, what have you called me to? You see, God is calling you to partner with him to solve his problems, not yours. And he'll tell you what they are. He'll share his burden. You remember Moses in the burning bush? I have seen the plight of my people. You will feel and hear and experience God's heart. You'll see it break and yours will break with it. There will be no question in your mind when you've, when you've found the heart of the Lord. And finally, Father, what do you want me to do? now. And when he's quiet, lean in more. And you'll find yourself times you need to do what you know to do based on what you've learned so far. And other times he will say, wait, but each day lean in. And here's the beautiful thing. Whatever it is that you do, however much you screw up, neither your faith nor your failure, none of that can impact the ability for God to see his plan come to fruition in your life. And so when you screw up, if you screw up, how you screw up, it doesn't matter. The beautiful thing is that the one thing that matters is that you pursue the Lord's heart. The one thing that matters is you find your way back to be with him. And so I want to, I want to end here um, with a, a poem that I actually uh, got from the Lord and, um, and shared with my wife. And, and I, I, it just captures so much of this. So uh, if you just want to listen to this, and then I'll pray us out, and we'll be good to go. So it's, it's called Brave Enough to Trust. I strove and strove to put my hand to everything that I could mend. I put on a stubborn face and fought the fight more power than grace. 
If I could do but one thing more, all would be well within my door. Not a single need unmet would mean my worth was surely set. But still one step beyond my grasp, the omnipotent eye was failing fast. Then shone a light on my dark path, it is not I that makes us last. More braves a babe at mother's breast than I who hope in warrior's crest. Trust is the bravest act we know, the greatest way to rival blow. And so I want to encourage you guys, brave, being brave enough to trust, pursue the Lord, and you can do more with God than you could possibly do for him.